Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, this week we're coming from Israel. That's right, Jimmy. It's great to be back producing the program here in Israel. We're here for Rosh Hashanah and we have a tour group here as well. Yes, and uh, we're going to be talking about our trip here in Israel with our group. And look at the book. We'll talk about why we go to the different locations that we go to. But we've got our main program, our broadcast partners that are here with us this week. Ken Timmerman, David Dolan, Steve Herzig, Winky Madad, and Dr. Don DeYoung. Let's get started, Rick, with our first broadcast partner. Ken Timmerman joins us today. We're here in Israel, and Ken is back there in the United States. Ken is our expert on geopolitics. Ken, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me uh, along with you, Rick. It's a, it's a pleasure, and I hope you're enjoying Israel. We certainly are, and thank you very much. Well, we'll start off today with the major news that's coming out this week. On Wednesday, Vladimir Putin gave a speech, and he seemed to kind of escalate the war, call for mobilization, maybe even a nuclear threat. What do you know about that? Well, he definitely upped the ante in this speech uh, on Wednesday. Mm. He declared a uh, partial mobilization of 300,000 troops. Uh, This would dwarf the Ukrainian army and dwarf the forces uh, Putin had in place to invade Ukraine to start with. Apparently, that mobilization is not going that well. We've heard uh, reports that uh, young men are fleeing Russia. They're getting on any plane they can find. Uh, there aren't many places they can fly, but they can go to Tbilisi, Georgia. Uh, they can go uh, to China. They can go other places in, in the Caucasus to Turkey. Uh, but those seats are all selling out. And there have been uh, rumbles of protests in the streets of Moscow immediately put down by the security forces. Uh, Putin's threat of nuclear war is even more disturbing. He has from the beginning said that he will retaliate whenever and use all forces to retaliate whenever he feels that Russia's territorial integrity is being violated or being challenged. Now, the the context here, Rick, is that Putin is talking about holding referendum in the occupied territories of eastern Ukraine in these two provinces, Luhansk and Donetsk, even though Uh, He is being pushed back. His troops are being pushed back from new areas they have occupied. They still have overwhelming control of Luhansk and Donetsk. They've been there since 2014, and they have puppet governments. And these puppet governments in those areas are calling for referenda that would uh, essentially uh, declare that they are now part of Russia, that they are seceding from Ukraine and becoming part of Russia. Now, if that happens... Uh, first of all, the international community is not going to recognize it. Uh, President Macron of France has already said these would be just sham referenda. But if it happens, this gives Putin the cover, if you wish, to declare that Russian territory is being attacked by Ukraine and uh, by extension by NATO forces, because that is now his new angle of attack rhetorically. He's saying that Ukraine essentially is the tip of the NATO spear and NATO is behind all of Ukraine's actions. And so if Ukraine continues to advance into those two occupied provinces, which Putin now says are part of Russia, then you have this nuclear threat hanging over everybody. I think it is a very, very serious escalation. It seriously ups the ante in this war. 
Well, in your opinion, Ken, and looking at this, I mean, obviously a man who has the nuclear weapons at his disposal like Putin does, it's super concerning. Now, is this just him mentioning it as a bluff or is this something that could actually happen? Well, it's interesting. Putin himself said this is not a bluff. If Putin has to say this is not a bluff, maybe it, it is a bluff. <laughs> I mean, uh, seriously, often, oftentimes you see this with Joe Biden uh, and with many Democrats in the United States. They uh, accuse their political opponent of exactly what they are doing. So for Putin to say this is not a bluff could actually mean a bluff. It could be a negotiating ploy. Uh, remember, they were deep into negotiations with Ukraine in March and very early April. It looked like there was going to be some kind of Russian withdrawal and a neutralization of Ukraine, where Ukraine would agree not to join NATO. That fell apart when Boris Johnson visited Kiev uh, in uh, the beginning of April and pointed to Russian war crimes from areas that they had just uh, evacuated north of Kiev. That basically ended the serious negotiations between Russia and Ukraine. So today, is Putin trying to reopen these negotiations? Time will tell. But this is not a good position to be in, where we're having both leaders, uh, Putin and Biden, talking about nuclear escalation. Well, that's certainly a situation that we want to keep our eye on. And you look at Russia and you look at their nuclear capabilities. It's something that is very concerning. Well, we'll move to the other big story of the week. And it is in Iran where there are protests raging and the government's looking to shut those protests down. Can you talk about the protests and what's going on there? Sure. This all began uh, last week when a young Kurdish woman, a 22-year-old Kurdish woman named Masa Amini, was apparently brutally beaten by uh, the security police after she had tossed off her headscarf, her hijab, very publicly on a visit to Tehran. Demonstrations have erupted all across the country since then. Police have responded violently. Uh, reports of anywhere from 17 people dead, that's the regime's count, the official count, or 31 people dead, that's some of the human rights organizations who have been giving those figures. But remarkable footage has been coming out on Twitter and on TikTok, mm -hmm. Telegram, other social media channels, Rick, of these protests. And in some of them, we see women gathering around bonfires in the streets of Tehran, tossing their headscarves into the bonfires. In others, we see young men in the streets pushing back on the riot troops of the regime and advancing on them and, and actually driving them back, driving them away. These are big things. Now, is this going to lead to uh, nationwide protests that escalate where you have hundreds of thousands or millions of people on the streets? I don't know. I tend to think uh, not because the people have done this several times in recent years and they understand that without backing from the United States, from Europe, they cannot topple this regime at this point. They need to be better organized and they need to have an actual you know, group of leaders inside Iran, which they don't have yet. But this is significant. It's getting attention in the West and it is making the regime itself very unpopular, even as President Raisi, the, the selected president of the regime, is visiting New York at the U.N. General Assembly. And Ken, we've seen demonstrations like this before and they've been brutally put down by the regime in charge there in Iran. And, and of course, I guess they have to, because if not, they're going to lose control and may lose control of their government, which would lead to regime change. Is that something that's even possible or, or no? 
Yes, I think there will be a regime change uh, sooner rather than later over the next couple of years. And I think it could come organically from inside Iran as, as people just get fed up. And here's the thing to keep your eye on. As the riot police themselves, as the IRGC, the Re Revolutionary Guards, uh, as the people in the intelligence ministry refuse to crack down on the protesters, refuse to kill their fellow Iranians. When that starts to happen, the re regime could crumble very quickly. Let me point to one other thing that I think is very significant that happened this week. The Iranian regime when these kind of protests erupt, they like to shut down the internet so they can kill in the darkness. Uh, Elon Musk just this week sought a review from the Treasury Department in the United States so he could provide Starlink equipment. This is the satellite hmm. internet equipment to Iran as he had tried to do with Ukraine. He was approved to do so by the Treasury Department. If Elon Musk does this and the Iranians are able to bypass government censorship, uh, this could be a game changer because it would allow them to document all of the human rights abuses and the brutality of the regime even more than they are doing today. Very interesting. We'll have to keep an eye on that. Well, my final question to you, and we look at this and we've looked at it in the past, and all of this goes uh, along with the backdrop of the Iranian nuclear deal negotiations and them trying to restart it. Israel is basically the main object of Iran's ire, and uh, they say only a credible military threat will stop Iran from going nuclear. And, and I wonder if you agree with that and where that situation is headed. I think that point of view has become obvious over the past couple of years. Mm -hmm. uh, and this was uh, what you're referring to here this week was a statement by Israeli ambassador to the United Nations, Gilad Erdan. But he was saying what Israeli leaders have been saying really for quite some time. Uh, and they have been complaining that the Biden administration has relaxed the campaign of maximum pressure that President Trump put in place. Uh, they have made unilateral concessions. The Americans have made unilateral concessions to the Iranian regime over the past year and gotten nothing, absolutely zero in exchange. We haven't gotten hostages out. We haven't gotten a, a willingness of the regime to make concessions in the nuclear talks. Uh, we, we not, Nothing has changed. We have given them billions of dollars, released billions of dollars from sanctions. We've allowed them essentially to sell their oil on the black market without any U.S. intervention. There have been tankers full of oil seized and the U.S. has released them. Uh, so we are giving, giving, giving to the Iranian side, getting nothing in exchange. So I think the Israelis uh, have really come to the conclusion that without this credible threat of military force, from the United States, not just Israel, from the United States, the Iranians will continue their headlong rush to nuclear weapons. It certainly does seem as we talk about Russia and Putin, Vladimir Putin, and then we talk about what's going on in Iran right now. And, and they have nuclear, both instances have nuclear implications. It certainly is concerning developments and a test of our leadership, world leadership, but especially our leadership here in the United States. Well, Ken, we thank you so much for reporting on this, keeping our listeners informed, because we need to be informed as we look to decide how our leadership is doing and what we should do to address that problem. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Rick. God bless. That was Ken Timmerman. And as always, Rick, great job on the interview. There's so many things that we cover as far as geopolitical uh, happenings around the world. And it's very important that we keep our eyes on events taking place 
as it pertains to Bible prophecy. Well, we are in Israel, and we'll come back with our Middle East News Update with David Dolan as we talk to him about what's taking place here in the land and during Rosh Hashanah, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Russia has doubled down on its invasion of Ukraine. Russian-backed officials now plan to hold referendums in the occupied Donetsk and Luhansk regions, formally making them a part of Russia. In addition, Vladimir Putin announced a partial mobilization of Russia's population into the military. Eric Mach with the Slavic Gospel Association says it means the war will continue on for some time. Pray Russian Christians would reflect Jesus in a chaotic time. And it's hard to follow the Lord when family or friends may ridicule your faith. But the stakes are even higher for Christians in India. Daniska is a young girl in India who was attending Mission India's year-long children's Bible club. I say was because her parents have now banned her from Bible club. When her parents found out she accepted Christ as Savior, they were furious and took away her Bible. So pray for Daniska and other Indian kids to grow in their relationship with Jesus. More at missionnews.org. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Have you ever wanted to visit Israel and trace the footsteps of Jesus? With Rick and Jim's VIP trips, you'll see Israel past, present, and prophetic. Our VIP trips are typically smaller groups of 8 to 12 people. This smaller group size allows us to spend more one-on-one time answering your questions and personalizing our tour. It is a very intimate experience. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time not to only visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. We can also customize our trip for your family or small group. Please call Joshua Travel today and see how we can make your trip extra special. Call 423-821-3635 or visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. Well, we are in Israel right now, Jimmy and I, and we are talking to David Dolan. He usually does our Middle East news update with us. Dave, thank you for joining us today. I wish I were actually joining you in, uh, in Israel. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, maybe someday soon, right? Amen. Amen. Next year in Jerusalem. Well, let's get started with the stories, Dave. And the first one, the lead story, the biggest story this week was that the, the current prime minister, Prime Minister Lapid, made a speech to the UN. He made a very uh, moving speech, actually, I think uh, many are saying, in that he um, summarized uh, the modern history of Israel, and um, he referred to the Holocaust several times. Of course, he lost a relative in it, and as most Israelis uh, at least know somebody that's family lost someone. Mm. But he went on to talk about that they came back with an attitude of not looking back, not hating, not uh, despondent because of uh, obviously a reason to be six million Jews killed and et cetera. But he said, we came to build, we Mm. came to look forward, we came to start from scratch, and we're still building. And he went on and detailed that in many ways. And he was implying, I thought, Rick, that um, the Palestinians have done just the opposite. You know, they haven't tried to build a real state. The Oslo Accords gave them an opening to do that. 
And of course, they haven't done it. And they're always looking backwards. They're always talking about 1948 and on and on. So I think he was he didn't say that in so many words, but I think that was a part of it. And then he gave a description of the land that I thought, uh, in fact, I thought the tourism ministry must have written that section because he talked about skiing up on Mount Hermon <laughs> and the beautiful snow in the winter. And then you go down to the Dead Sea and you can float. And he went down to the desert and talked about the sand and the, you know, it was quite poetic, really. And then he got into the hardcore stuff. And that was basically um, stating that Iran, he began with Iran is a huge challenge to Israel, is a huge threat. He said, I want to remind this uh, this august body that they are vowing to destroy us. And there was silence in international capitals and bodies in earlier times when these threats were made against us. Again, mm. a reference. He didn't say Hitler, etc., but a reference to the Holocaust. And he said, now you have a choice to be silent again and let Iran get a nuclear bomb through this horrible deal, and he talked about the deal for a few minutes, why Israel is so opposed to it, and uh, the harm it would do if it's entered into. And um, it was quite, uh, some of the statements he made were quite strong in that regard. But then he went on to talk about the Palestinians directly, and he stated that he is for a two-state solution, a Palestinian state next to an Israeli state. That's the first time any uh, prime minister has said that at the U.N. since 2014, I think it was, something like that. So it wasn't something Netanyahu was pushing. But Lapid does support that. He's a center-left politician. He does support a two-state solution. But he did state quite clearly only if it's a state that lives in peace with Israel. And uh, he said, we're, we're not going to have another um, Gaza Strip on our doorstep. We're not going to turn it over to anybody unless it's clear that it is demilitarized. So that was um, a pretty strong statement. Of course, it's not on the cards right now anyway, but that was the essence of it. And he got a pretty good reception. And, uh, and he met with the uh, British uh, new prime minister, and she told him that uh, on the sidelines, she told him that, uh, they want to move their embassy, Rick, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Her new government wants to do that. And uh, he was thrilled to hear that. Uh, it had been in the media. I mentioned it last week in our interview, but um, this was an important uh, development. And he pointed out the UK is a major world power still with nuclear weapons and, you know, a major economy, et cetera, and to have their uh, to do that, to move the uh, uh, embassy as the U.S. did, would be most welcomed by Israelis. Well, at that same meeting that uh, Lapid made his speech at, King Abdullah from Jordan also made a speech. And in it, he did attack Israel. And many feel like maybe Prime Minister Lapid should have taken him to task for that. And also, if you could, David, could you comment on the fact that it has come out rather recently, or it's going to come out in a book, that Donald Trump offered Israel's West Bank to that same King Abdullah of Jordan? Yes, uh, well, I'll just start with that. It's a new book coming out to uh, New York reporters a claim that uh, suddenly out of the blue, Trump in 2018 meeting with Abdullah said, hey, uh, we'll just turn over the disputed territories to you. You can run the show. And uh, the king himself later said that he almost had a heart attack <laughs> when he heard that. And of course, the reality is, Rick, he doesn't want 
control of that area. He has enough problems as it is. It's a troubled area to say the least, and he doesn't need another a million Palestinian citizens under his control. He's not wanting that at all. So that's that. But no, the the um, the king in New York uh, made a very his speeches have been very moderate, uh, moderate mostly in recent uh, years. Well, really, always he's been fairly pro-Western, fairly moderate. But he just went on a binge about Jews and oppressing Christians in Jerusalem and in Israel entirely. And uh, as the Jerusalem Post pointed out in a very well-written editorial, I thought, um, this is nonsense. The only Middle East country with a growing Christian population, statistically, you can prove this, is Israel, the only one. Hmm. Now, Bethlehem's lost a lot of its Christians, but that's because Hamas is so strong there. And the PLO runs it, but Hamas actually has a strong presence there. And it has driven about half the Christians uh, that were there when I moved to Israel in 1980 are gone, you know, in their offspring. And that's sad. But in Israel itself, the faith is growing. And there's no repression of Christian churches in Jerusalem, which he said. And basically, it, it just was, uh, you know, like, why are you throwing, that's what the editorial said, why are you throwing fire uh, on an already burning, hmm. you know, situation in Jerusalem uh, over the Temple Mount? And we've talked about this many times, and, and uh, you know, and this could provoke a full war. And he says, quote, that Christians in the holy city are, quote, under fire. Hmm. Under fire by who? You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's just nonsense. And um, whether Lapid brought it up privately when they talked afterwards, uh, we don't know. But uh, the Post editorial was saying he should have. And, you know, this he needs to apologize to, to Israel, which is the only Middle East country with a growing Christian population everywhere else in the region. Syria, it's terrible. Iraq, it's terrible. On and on. It's um, just the opposite of what he said. Well, as we've talked about this before, he is probably the most moderate leader of all the Arab countries around or surrounding Israel or in the Middle East. But he does have a large Palestinian population, and sometimes it seems like he's straddling uh, the proverbial fence. Well, we'll continue on our final question. We just have another minute here left, David. Uh, just I, I noticed that Israel's population is climbing in the recent census. There are almost to 10 million people in the country, and that may grow when you look at the immigration potentially coming from Jews coming from Russia. Well, in fact, Rick, it is growing. But as you said, the Bureau of Statistics, every Rosh Hashanah, the new year, which starts tomorrow evening, as you know, in the land, you'll be there and enjoy that. Mm -hmm. But they release population growth statistics. And it's, as you said, 9.5 million residents now. And uh, 74%, 7 million uh, are Jews. So a million more than perished in the Holocaust are now living in Israel. 2 million are Arabs at 21%. And then there's other groups around. But the numbers from Russia and Ukraine are just phenomenal, Rick. And mm. the uh, government stated that over the past year, there's been a huge uh, uptick in immigration, mostly from those areas since the war started. And it's nearly 60,000 so far have come. And in recent days after Putin announced a mobilization 
of reserve uh, soldiers in his country. Uh, Russians are fleeing like crazy. The price of a ticket to Tel Aviv has gone up to $1,500, and in some cases, $5,000, they're saying. And, but, it, but they are fleeing. Uh, the flights are booked, are full, and the government in Israel is holding an emergency uh, session, actually, to discuss this. They're expecting hundreds and hundreds of Russian Jews to pour into the country in the coming days, and they're all going to be welcome. They do have a place to go, and uh, uh, but it's a real tense situation. And but Israel keeps growing, and uh, God keeps blessing it. And the Prime Minister's right; it is a beautiful land, and I'm envious of you being there. But enjoy <laughs> your stay. Well, we certainly will. And we do know that the return of the Jews to the land, the creation of the state of Israel and the return of the Jews to the land is a sign that God's end time scenario is beginning to come to fruition. Well, thank you so much for all that you do when you educate our listeners. And uh, maybe next year in Jerusalem, David. Shana Tova. God bless. We're going to take a break right now on Prophecy Today. But when we return, we'll have Winky Madad. Dr. Don DeYoung, and more. Stay tuned right here on Prophecy Today Radio. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy D. Young Jr. along with my brother Rick. We have on the line with us today Steve Herzig. Everybody that knows our ministry when it comes around the Jewish holidays, we speak to Steve Herzig about uh, from Friends of Israel about what's taking place and uh, to explain the Jewish holiday that is either coming up or just passed. Steve, before we get started on Rosh Hashanah, can you tell us what it meant to your family? Oh, that's a great question. Rosh Hashanah is one of the high holidays, as Jewish people will call it. It's a very important day. Uh, it's the beginning of the fall feast falls in the month of Tishrei, which is September, October. This year, all three holidays are in September. And Rosh Hashanah is the kind of uh, holiday that uh, you have to have a special meal, uh, which we always had. The family gets together. I recall with great joy going to synagogue with my dad. I come from a Orthodox background, which meant that the men sat in one side of the synagogue, and the women sat in another. There was a dividing wall. Uh, and so that was meaningful to me because I was with my father. I'm the only, I was his only son. We had two sisters. And so the idea of this day is repentance. And you have to think about your sins over the past year 
and trying to make things right. So we not only confess to God, uh, there's actually a liturgy for the sins which I have sinned before thee, and then we list them. Uh, and, but you also want to repent to people, uh, things you have said, ways you have wronged them. And so for me, it's, it's a special time. Apples and honey are eaten. We greet each other with Lashana Tova, which means a happy year, uh, a blessed year. It's the idea of we know that in 10 days Yom Kippur is coming, and uh, you're going to be sealed in the Book of Life or in the Book of Judgment, so you have 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and then. So my memories are it's a solemn time. The Bible talks about it in the Book of Leviticus uh, as a Sabbath day, which means it's a holy day. It's a day of no work. It's a day of uh, time spent with family and with God. And after all, that's a wonderful thing, and it was for me growing up. Now, from your perspective as a Christian, and if you were to look at that, how are Christians to relate to Rosh Hashanah? You know, there is an easy segue, at least from a Jewish point of view, to Christianity, and that is this. The Feast of Trumpets, which it's also called, Head of the Year, Rosh Hashanah means Head of the Year. The Feast of Trumpets is the ho- one of the names of the holiday in the Bible in Leviticus 23. And the uh, Christians, we go to church, and depending on the the denomination or the independent church that it might be, how often they celebrate communion. But when we go into communion or breaking of bread or Eucharist, whatever it's called, uh, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians, it says that we are to examine ourselves to see if we're in the household of faith. Paul's writing to Christians there. Well, that's concept is a Jewish concept that takes place at Rosh Hashanah, where we examine ourselves, we examine our life, we find out where we've been short of what God expects us, and we confess it. We confess it before God, we confess it before man. And so for me, the transition from Rosh Hashanah, from a Jewish point of view, is natural to a Christian point of view, because There's nothing we can do on our own. Judaism teaches we can, we can do mitzvot, good deeds. But once you read the the Scripture, the Older Testament text is very clear, uh, and certainly the New Testament, that there's nothing we can do in the flesh. No amount of work is going to get us to be holy. Only the Messiah, the Savior, can make us holy. But Rosh Hashanah teaches me that, hey, I have to have a contrite heart, I have to examine myself, and it's a contrast between an unholy person that I am and how holy God is and how grateful I am that God redeemed me through Jesus Christ. There's a passage in Genesis 22 called the Akita, which is a binding in Hebrew, uh, in which Abraham takes his son and offers him up as an offering. Genesis 22, for the Christian, is such a vivid picture of God uh, taking, willing to offer his son, and his son, Jesus, being willing to suffer and die. In Genesis 22, Isaac asked his dad as they're journeying to Mount Moriah, he said, Dad, I have the fire, I have the wood, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, oh, the Lord himself will be the sacrifice, my son. And so you have the willing son, the obedient son, you have the father who loves his son, uh, his only son, uh, and in the eyes of God, Abraham's son Isaac was his only son. He was willing to offer him, but he didn't. A ram caught in a thicket, 
But for us, we see the picture, the great gospel message, where a loving God is offering his son, the second person in the Godhead, who incarnated on the earth, lived, breathed, lived a human life as 100% God, 100% man, and then was willing to suffer and die for us. It's a great picture, I think, and a great transition for us as believers. Well, if you look at it, we as Christians don't observe the Jewish feast, but we have an application that we can take from them. And the, the, the Feast of the Trumpets, the shofar, the call to action that's blown repeatedly throughout this period, it's a call to action for the Jewish people. But if we were to take that alert, that urgency that that is tended to create, and we were to translate that to Christians, what would be that call to action for us as Christians today? Well, we know that, as you described, the shofar being a call. It's a, it's a call. It's a reminder. It's a call back. It could be if Jews that were outside of the wall, safety behind the wall, they blew the shofar. Joshua blew the, had the shofar blown, and the, and the stones came tumbling down that wall. The shofar is a call. And as Christians, we wait for a trumpet blast. We really do. And that trumpet blast is described in 1 Thessalonians, knowing that at any moment God can call his church to be with himself. It is a reminder, a call to action. The time is late. It is great. The need is great. We need to be about the Father's business, which is to communicate biblical truth, communicate the gospel message, which is exactly what your radio program is doing on a weekly basis and what the whole D. Young family uh, has wanted to do and continues to want to do, uh, which is a, a wonderful blessing so that people can grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and also communicate the gospel wherever they can. I think that trumpet call is a great reminder for us as believers. That's Steve Herzig from Friends of Israel. We are here during Rosh Hashanah. We're in Israel. And, Rick, let's get to Israel Madad, or Winky Madad, as we affectionately know him, and find out what is happening with the Jewish families and the political scene in Israel. Winky Madad joins us today. He is our frequent guest. He is our man on the ground in Israel. Actually, we are calling you. We're in Israel this week as well, Winky. It's a local call as we talk to you today. Shana Tava. Shana Tava, a good year. Thank you very much. Uh, I am, of course, referring to Rosh Hashanah, which I'm going to ask you about in a second. But first, uh, Winky, if you could, I'd like you to do the impossible. Explain to me or summarize how the Israeli elections are going and what's going to happen in the coming weeks. Well, um, elections are going to be at the beginning of November. At the present moment, Mr. Netanyahu of the Likud party, not only has held together his potential coalition partners or those who were his partners in his previous governments, uh, but he's also held them together for the upcoming election. In other words, they've been very uh, strategically together. Uh, he's, uh, in, in two instances, he intervened, shall we say, uh, and had two parties in two different instances join forces uh, so that none of the votes would be lost because here in Israel, two parties can sign a sharing of uh, votes so that because we have a proportional system, every vote counts. And if you lose votes, it's really too bad. And this way, 
two, body, two parties who are running close together in terms of ideology or politics, they can sign an agreement that they share their votes together. So he's been very good. On the other side, you have two different people who are running for prime minister. Uh, Mr. Yair Lapid, who in fact appeared at the UN this past week, and Benny Gantz, who was uh, the and is the uh, defense minister, both in Netanyahu's government, actually, and in uh, Lapid and Naftali Bennett's government. And they don't look too good. In every single poll, they do not come close to 60, except if they have Arabs join them. And that's, as we've been discussing for years, a very difficult uh, decision to make, which, mm-hmm. as far as I know, the Israeli public will not accept. Uh, so now Ben Netanyahu is around 60, 61 consistently. Uh, there's still some bumps in the road, uh, but I can say it looks good in, in a limited fashion. Well, we appreciate you summarizing that for us, and we will continue to keep an eye on that. But Let's move away from politics, and we'll talk about something a little bit more interesting, maybe a little bit more uplifting. I started this interview by saying Shana Tova, which means for a good year. We're at Rosh Hashanah. We're getting ready to celebrate that here in Israel. Can you talk to us a little bit about why Rosh Hashanah is special? Well, the Jewish New Year is always in the fall because of the Hebrew calendar and because of our biblical references. I won't go into that. But anybody who studies the Bible knows that almost every single holiday, uh, at least in, in, in uh, a biblical origin rather than some like Hanukkah or Purim, always have a double or triple message. And most of them revolve about something uh, of, shall we say, ethical and moral importance as well as just celebrating a holiday. I mean, you know, Thanksgiving is okay, but a lot of people just go for the turkey. Uh, so, uh, Rosh Hashanah by us is the time of taking an account. What did we do in the past year that was good and what was bad? And for what was bad, we should seek atonement. And uh, so, uh, in some places you always see the Hadith holidays called the high holy days. And of course, uh, that refers to the fact that Rosh Hashanah begins a 10 day period of introspection, of accounting, of requesting from God to forgive, in many cases, asking your neighbor or family member or someone else who you perhaps were not as good as you could have been towards uh, to forgive you for some slight or something else that you have done. It ends with the Yom Kippur fast. So for us, it's not uh, just a holiday. And I can tell you when you sit in the synagogue for about five to six hours, you also realize the seriousness of of the day. Uh, so hmm. that's a, a, a short summary of, of the importance of Rosh Hashanah. That time of reflection is good for everybody. But t- tell me, Winky, and you've done this in the past before, could you give us just a little personal flavor of what Rosh Hashanah is like? What are the special customs? What personal things does the Madad family do during this time of the year? Oh, well, uh, of course, there's always on the first night of Rosh Hashanah, uh, we have a, a sort of a tasting of all different types of fruits and vegetables. Uh, and ask for a special uh, blessing uh, relating to the way that Hebrew na- names refer perhaps to acts that we should be doing. 
so there's always a lot of honey involved. Since mm-hmm. I have a European background, there's what we call gefilte fish, which is a, a fish patty mm-hmm. that is of ground fish, and it's always good. We have the matzo ball soup. There's the wine that we always use over the sanctification before we have the meal, what we call the kiddush. There's always a lot of unique things uh, in almost every single holiday that makes sitting there on the table not only uh, enjoyable, but special. And, and people ask questions about things that are going on. So there's always a great family involvement in the meal. I can attest to that for sure. I have spent Rosh Hashanah in the company of some of my Jewish friends, and it's a special family time, like you said, similar to a Thanksgiving or a Christmas. Of course, Christmas with us has different meaning, but it's that meal, that time of togetherness, but also means something a little bit more. So yes, it is a special time here in Israel, and Shana Tova would be a, a way of wishing your friends and maybe your Jewish friends a good new year. Well, Continuing to talk about Rosh Hashanah, and this is an unfortunate side uh, effect of that, I have seen some stuff in the news, and I wanted your comment on it, and it looks like there are those that are saying that during this Rosh Hashanah season, they believe there are going to be too many Jewish visitors to the Temple Mount, and if that's the case, they're going to cause some trouble. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, the, the main issue that I think our listening audience should pay attention to is that the Temple Mount is both a Muslim, Jewish, and a Christian holy site. And it would behoove everybody if some sort of an arrangement could be s- substituted for what they call the status quo, in which even the Israeli government uh, officially says that Jews should not be able to pray or to do anything religious, like blow the shofar on the Temple Mount. Now, you have probably heard the shofar blow. That sound is it can be very loud. It could be very in, inspiring. It doesn't, unlike in the Bible, it doesn't bring down the walls of Jericho anymore, at least not that I've seen recently. So that there should be no problem to say, listen, between 1 o'clock and 2 o'clock in the afternoon in Rosh Hashanah, Jews can come up and blow the shofar. The mosque is not going to come down, and the Dome of the Rock Monument is not going to come down. But, of course, as we all know, they disagree. And so when they disagree, it isn't saying they disagree. They will throw rocks, and they will threaten violence. And, of course, for those who have been to Jerusalem or been on your tours, uh, you know that the uh, uh, Western Wall Plaza, which can hold perhaps tens of thousands of people sometime, is just below the Temple Mount, and some of these rocks and other things can come flying over the wall. So, of course, there can be a possibility of violence, and that's what they're interested in. Uh, so we've had several Gaza operations in the past two or three years supposedly start because Jews are, are at the Temple Mount. So this is an unfortunate aspect of bringing religion that could possibly unite people in terms of service of God and, and, and goodness and kindness to man to each other uh, to some sort of political fight, which is unnecessary. Uh, but that's the threat. That's the reality. That's what you'll be reading. And we hope everything will pass because this year, both days of Rosh Hashanah, the Temple Mount should be open to the visits. Sometimes it's on a fall, will fall on a Friday or, or, or Saturday when Jews cannot at all go up, or other times. So uh, we'll just have to wait and see. 
We certainly will, and uh, we do know that the Temple Mount has been a consistent area of controversy, and you talk about it potentially being an area where people can work together, but that certainly has not been the case. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us on this eve of uh, Rosh Hashanah. We appreciate uh, the time that you take to educate our listeners, and Shana Tova, have a great new year, Winky. And in fact, a sweet new year, as some people say, to you, uh, family, and our listening audience. Thank you very much for having me on. Well, Israel Madad gives us uh, an understanding of what's going on here in the land. And uh, as we are here this time with him, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing him while we're on the trip and uh, getting a firsthand glimpse. But of course, this is the holidays. There will be a lot of uh, apples and honeys with the new year coming along. A lot of greetings of uh, Shana Tuva. And uh, it's so interesting to be here in the land and to see uh, all that is happening and have a group here at the same time. Well, we got a question this last week, and I was asked to ask Dr. DeYoung a question, and so we're welcoming to the program today Dr. Don DeYoung. Welcome to the program, Dr. DeYoung. Well, hello. Good to join you again. <laughs> yes. And uh, first of all, I know that uh, you've been to Israel. How long ago were you here, and what were your thoughts as you were here in the land? Well, my wife Sally and I visited uh, the Holy Land. It probably was two decades ago now. We're ready to ready to go again. Mm. But uh, we spent three weeks there touring the entire country. A lot of good memories. A wonderful time. Wow. Yes, it is. And a lot has changed over 20 years. You know, when you see things and how it's grown. Uh, what hasn't changed really is the infrastructure of Jerusalem, <laughs> the the streets. So as you can tell, it's probably a, a lot crazier with traffic and things here. But there's a lot of people that come to Jerusalem during this time of the year. And uh, man, we would love to do a trip with you, Dr. DeYoung. I think that would be so great. Uh, we'll have to talk about that in the future. Well, we got a, a question from one of our listeners. And he asked, thank you for your excellent work in carrying on your dad's ministry. I depend on your weekly program to keep up to date on how the geopolitical is setting the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. And then he goes and asks a question for us to help him to understand geoengineering. He says, uh, I was struck by the significant negative effects geoengineering is having on climate change and that these efforts are continuing to this day. This is so destructive to our wonderful God-created world and could and should be stopped if enough of us knew about it and pushed back on the powers that be. Well, first of all, Dr. DeYoung, and he asked for you specifically to give us uh, an understanding of geoengineering. What is geoengineering? Well, I do appreciate the question. You know, geoengineering is a field of study. It's an effort to control the Earth's environment. Now, there are both positives and negatives to that. Uh, in Israel, for instance, um, the whole area of uh, cloud seeding to mm. control the rain has been quite successful there in, in the Middle East. Now, it always causes problems because when you make rain one place, That'll take rain away from another place, and that can lead to lawsuits and things like that. So anyway, that would kind of be a positive end. Now, there are always um, unintended consequences when you do anything to nature, to the environment. And uh, that's, I think, our listeners' thoughts on the geoengineering area that he was reading about. 
what he was really referring to, uh, it's a popular idea right now that involves these condensation trails mm. made by aircraft. There's a popular idea that they're not just um, vapor from planes, but that there's more behind the scenes, that these are some sort of chemical trails being laid down by groups. Several reasons are offered to control the climate, but then it gets more sinister. The idea that some of these chemicals being placed high in the air are to um, alter our minds, population control, to poison us. In other words, the whole conspiracy idea that um, there are secret groups putting things in the air to control us. And um, this area certainly needs to be challenged. And your thoughts on that is that that is not taking place. Well, no, there are no secret government programs for mind control in the air. The thing is, is uh, we've all seen these trails in the sky and uh, sometimes multiple ones just depends on, you know, what kind of air traffic there is. And what people get upset about is sometimes these trails seem to linger other times they disappear quickly high in the air and people say, what's going on? But really, there's physical science behind all that. These um, trails made by airplanes, it's part of the exhaust of a, of a jet engine. It all depends several miles high on what the humidity is. If uh, the, that air is very dry, then those trails disappear. And, you know, the, the white lines are gone. Mm -hmm. If there's humidity up there, there's moisture, then the droplets cannot dissipate. And then the trails can linger for minutes, for hours and become crisscross with, with each other. So that's what makes people kind of wonder. But it's all, again, a, a physical science activity going on. It, it's natural. Again, um, the idea of a secret conspiracy needs to be challenged, needs to be um put down. Mm. Well, Dr. DeYoung, we've always talked about climate change on this program. We've talked about it many of times. We know that God controls everything, correct? Well, certainly he's in control of every detail. And, you know, as we're looking at this, is there anything, and we're, and we're supposed to be good stewards of this earth that God gave us, but is there anything that, that as Christians we should be aware of as far as climate change? Well, you know, as uh, people of faith, we've got the best reason for um, caring for this earth and the area of stewardship, because we know who planned it all in the first place. You know, what's really happening is the earth climate is always changing. It's always making adjustments. In early history, before the flood, the whole world was tropical. That was a different climate. Mm. Following the Great Flood, uh, the, the climate was thrown out of balance, and then we had a, an ice age, really, in Old Testament times, uh, kind of connected with the whole flood event. Then the Earth recovered, and it continues um, the world's temperature to uh, increase slightly, decrease slightly. It's always making adjustments. What we have going on at present is not a one-time effect. It's not the end of the world. And it's not that we should turn our back on it. And efforts are being made uh, as best we can to uh, uh, conservation and be good stewards. My goodness, we have wind turbines showing up around the world. We have <laughs> trees being planted. So things, good things are being, are being done. What you want to be careful of is going overboard, that area of geoengineering, to try to change the earth somehow. Often uh, that 
bites you, it causes more trouble than you had in the first place. It sure does. You know, and as uh, you have talked about before in this program, this being uh, a program that looks at Bible prophecy, we understand that in the future, during the tribulation period, 21 judgments are going to be unleashed on the earth that will cause devastation and destruction. And God's going to protect this earth. It's going to continue on until that time period comes, correct? Well, certainly. And you know, think about this. When the temperature of the earth changes by a degree or two, everyone gets upset. Mm. That in the end times where you have major events, when the Lord turns really the climate and the weather on its head and the earth shakes and reels, what a terrifying time that would be for people that are separate from the Lord. Yes, I think about some of those, even with the sun going dark and uh, the, just the, I mean, and that's all designed by God for the time of Jacob's trouble, for the day of the Lord, specifically for those seven-year period of times. So I want to remind people, Colossians 1, 16 and 17, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And that verse is still true uh, even today, correct? Well, certainly is, Jimmy, and I'm glad to be part of uh, your mission in, uh, in telling that truth. Well, Dr. DeYoung, thank you so much. This question was sent in to us. They asked for you specifically, and you are helping us to educate and edify the body of Christ. Thank you, Dr. DeYoung. We'll look forward to talking to you again in the future. Okay, same here. Thank you. Dr. Don DeYoung, always inspirational and uh, giving us the facts of what's happening in the scientific world as a creation physicist. Well, we've got to take a break, and when we come back, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung in the Legacy Series, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr., and along with my brother Rick, we are examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, the Legacy Series with our father, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, is a very important part of the program. It sure is, Jimmy, and today's program is extra special. Our father, the late Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, who passed away August 15th of last year, 2021, is going to be introducing this series. Obviously, these are recorded series, but the unique thing about this one, and we don't always keep the introductions on, but the unique thing about this one is that Dad introduced it, and Dad always felt like he was going to be taken in the rapture. Uh, This is a very special introduction, so we're going to leave it in its entirety and play it for you now. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. Last week, we studied the Word of God, and we determined that there are three heavens. The first heaven that you see in the daytime, the sun and the clouds. The second heaven, which we'll be able to see at night, the stars and the galaxies. And the third heaven, where God is. Our study is about heaven today, heaven tomorrow, and heaven forever. As we learned last time, we have a window that allows us to look into heaven today, into the third heaven. That window is Revelation chapters 4 and 5. Should you and I die before the rapture, we go directly to the third heaven, according to the Apostle Paul, as written in Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8. If we should live till the time of the rapture, again we go to the third heaven to stand before Jesus Christ 
at the judgment seat of Christ to have our works done after salvation to be judged by Jesus. It's in the third heaven, after the judgment seat of Christ, that we take the crowns received from Jesus at the judgment seat to lay at his feet. This is something beautiful. Please go in your Bible right now to Second Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7 for the account of how this all plays out. The Apostle Paul, in swan song, 2 Timothy chapter 4, he makes the statement, I ran a race, I fought the fight, I kept the faith. In verse 8, and laid up for me as a crown of righteousness, but not for me only, for all who love the appearing of Jesus Christ, eagerly loving and wanting the rapture to take place. That's a crown of righteousness. Now look at verse 10. In the heavenlies, what do we do with these crowns we received at the judgment seat of Christ? And the four and twenty elders representing the church fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. And so now we're seeing what's going on in the heavenlies at the time that we're looking at today or when we may go to the heavenlies. And to be absent from the body, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, is to be present with the Lord. Today, if we should die before the rapture takes place, we immediately go into the presence of the Lord. Angels, Luke 16, angels gather us up and take us into the heavenlies. And there, this is what we're going to be seeing when we arrive there. In the fifth chapter, the Lord God himself is going to give his son Jesus the title deed to the earth. That's this book that is a scroll book. It's probably a a roll, a single roll of parchment. And this single roll of parchment would have a wax seal, seven of the wax seals holding the flap from opening up. The first seal is going to be broken by Jesus Christ, chapter 6, verse 1. And as he breaks that seal, the scroll starts to unfurl, and out comes a man on a white horse. The second seal, a red horse, black horse, pale horse, and all the sealed judgments come out. Out of that seventh seal judgment, chapter 8, verse 1 of Revelation, comes the seven trumpet judgments. And then that's chapters 8, 9, and 11. Out of that seventh trumpet judgment, chapter 11 of Revelation, comes the seven vile judgments. And so this is the title deed to the earth. God the Father, who's going to give Jesus his kingdom, gives him the title deed to the earth to bring the earth under subjection and to bring earth dwellers under subjection so then he can receive that kingdom that he has promised to give. This in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation gives us the best description of the heavenlies that we have today. Now Jesus Christ is going to come back. Look at chapter 20 of the book of Revelation. Chapter 20. Jesus Christ is going to come back. And we'll not study that again. We've studied that in previous lessons. But Jesus Christ is going to come back. Chapter 19 verse 11 and following. Then what happens? Chapter 20 verse 1. And I saw an angel come down from heaven. Have a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand and he laid hold on that old dragon that old serpent which is the devil and satan and bound him a thousand years because jesus christ is coming back to the earth and he's bringing heaven with him do you not remember what jesus taught his disciples in the way to pray 
Matthew 6. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Listen. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what he taught them. Matthew chapter 6 is that commentary on how the kingdom is going to be. And he's teaching his people at that time, disciples, and all gathered there to hear him as he gives that sermon on the mount. This is what's going to happen. The heavens are going to move to the earth. Because remember, the definition according to Webster's Dictionary of heaven is the home of God. And Jesus Christ is coming back to the earth. He's establishing his kingdom. And that prayer, we call it the Lord's Prayer. It's really the disciples' prayer. The Lord's Prayer is John 17. The disciples' prayer that heaven will be on earth. That's what's going to happen. He's coming back after the terrible time of tribulation. He returns to the earth. He builds his temple in Jerusalem. The battle of Armageddon takes place. A hundred million soldiers at least die. And all of that then sets up for him to establish heaven on earth. By the way, do you think that we are going to enjoy a thousand year millennial kingdom, heaven on earth? With half the earth's population laying dead in the street? When the oceans having turned to blood, all of them? Every living fish or soul in the seas has died? Do you think that we're going to enjoy all of this misery on all the destruction that has happened in the seven-year period of time? I don't think so. But Jesus has a plan. Go to Matthew. Matthew. Chapter 19, Matthew 19, a very interesting little thought tucked in here in a message that he is giving to his apostles about the future and the kingdom. Look what he says, Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. And Jesus said unto them, verily I say unto you that ye which have followed me, listen, in the regeneration when the son of man shall sit in the throne of his glory. Where does he sit in the throne of his glory? In Jerusalem, in the kingdom. Now notice what he says again. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration. Now what is that talking about? That word in Greek is paleogenesia. Paleogenesia. You know what that defined is? Genesis, genesia, paleogenesia. Again, paleogenesia. When Jesus comes back, he converts the earth to how it was in Genesis 1. He goes, I studied with you when we looked at the kingdom. He goes to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, the center of the Garden of Eden, where he will rule his kingdom from. And so he changes the whole world, refurbishes the world into a place like it was at the time of Genesis. And thus the kingdom unfolds. Oh, he has a temple there. 
and the temple. Go to the book of Ezekiel chapter 45. The temple is unbelievable. In Ezekiel 40 to 46, there's 202 verses of detailed information about this temple that's going to be standing there. This will be a theocracy. Jesus Christ will be the ruler of the world. Nobody has rights. Everybody does what Jesus says. It's an automatic given. It's a theocracy that is in place for a thousand year period of time. There will be children that will be born during that time. There will be those coming out of the tribulation period with a physical body. Uh, They'll determine whether they're saved or lost at the judgment that Jesus Christ is in charge of because he's in charge of all judgments. The first one will be the 10 virgins in chapter 25 of Matthew. Five had their oil, five did not. He didn't know these. These are the five that represent the Jewish believers. They're not Christians. They believe in Jesus. They're Jewish believers who come out of the tribulation and go into the millennial kingdom with a physical body. And there will be Gentiles, the sheep and the goat judgment with Jesus Christ seated in Jerusalem, making that judgment. And all Gentiles with physical bodies who were saved come out and go into the millennial kingdom. And so you have Jews and Gentiles and physical bodies living in the millennial kingdom. The fact is they'll be able to have children. Isaiah 65, 20 said a child will be born in the millennial kingdom. They'll get to a hundred years of age, no longer being a child. They'll make a decision either to receive or reject Jesus Christ. If they reject Jesus Christ. They're sent to Hades to wait there. That's the holding area for all lost people before they go to the great white throne judgment. Revelation 20 verses 11 to 15. But these people will be living with physical bodies. How do they live with a physical body for a thousand year period of time? Well, I'm glad you ask. The Bible says in the book of Revelation chapter 2, when he's talking to the church at Ephesus, remember, there's a repeated phrase in all seven messages in Revelation 20 and, uh, excuse me, 2 and 3. The letters to the seven churches. And one of the, one of the repeated phrases is, he that hath an ear, let him hear. To him that overcometh. Those are two phrases. Who's an overcomer? Well, 1 John chapter 4 verse 5 says, anybody who knows Jesus Christ is an overcomer. And then he, in addition to those phrases repeated, he gives somebody, uh, he gives, excuse me, to believers something particular in each one of those messages to the seven churches. What does he give to the people that are overcomers that were in the church at Ephesus, which is applicable for us today? He gives them to eat of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Revelation 2, 7. You, if you're an overcomer, can eat of the tree of life. How do you think they're going to sustain life for a thousand years? They eat of the tree of life. The heavens, who's in the heavens? Everybody's come back to the kingdom. And so there's nobody there. They eat of the tree of life. They sustain life. You know that's the case, don't you? In Genesis chapter 3, When Adam and Eve have sinned, what did the Lord say? Put the cherubim over there and guard the entrance to the Garden of Eden. Why? Because if they enter the Garden of Eden and they eat of that tree of life, they'll live forever. In fact, I see no place in all of Scripture, and I've talked with great theologians who cannot give me a passage of Scripture to deal with this. When are those who come out of the tribulation with a physical body ever given a glorified body? No place in Scripture. So how do they sustain life? Well, what did the Lord say? If Adam and Eve eat of the tree of life, they will live for how long? Forever. And so those coming with physical bodies into this heaven on earth, heaven tomorrow, not heaven today, heaven tomorrow, 
the kingdom on the earth. They will sustain life. The kingdom on the earth, the kingdom given to Jesus by his Father at the Lord's second coming. That kingdom is an answer to prayer. The prayer Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven tomorrow is heaven on the earth in the future kingdom. At that time, Jesus will return this earth to how it was at the time of creation, and the Lord will rule over a thousand-year kingdom. What a blessed time that will be. It will be the time of heaven on earth. Next week, we conclude our study of heaven today, heaven tomorrow, and heaven forever. In our next study, we'll see what God has planned for us to do throughout all of eternity as we study about heaven forever. Please don't miss this study. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I look at the book right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Kramer with Mission Network News. Russia has doubled down on its invasion of Ukraine. Russian-backed officials now plan to hold referendums in the occupied Donetsk and Luhansk regions, formally making them a part of Russia. In addition, Vladimir Putin announced a partial mobilization of Russia's population into the military. Eric Mach with the Slavic Gospel Association says it means the war will continue on for some time. Pray Russian Christians would reflect Jesus in a chaotic time. And it's hard to follow the Lord when family or friends may ridicule your faith. But the stakes are even higher for Christians in India. Daniska is a young girl in India who is attending Mission India's year-long children's Bible club. I say was because her parents have now banned her from Bible club. When her parents found out she accepted Christ as Savior, they were furious and took away her Bible. So pray for Taniska and other Indian kids to grow in their relationship with Jesus. More at missionnews.org. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the Shepherd's Field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, we're here at Israel. Can you believe it? Yes, it sure has been great to be back here in Israel. Yes, and uh, you know... When we bring people to Israel, we like to look at it as a ministry. It's an opportunity to teach people about the land of the Bible, the land of milk and honey, and we look at Israel past, 
present, and future. And that was so wonderful to do during this time of Rosh Hashanah. The holidays are here. So much is going on. In fact, we're staying in the old city. We get to be really at the center of everything that's taking place in the city of Jerusalem, and not only in the city of Jerusalem, but in the state of Israel. By the way, Rick, Shana Tava. Shana Tava to you as well, and I hope you have a great new year, as we wish you. Uh, and as Winky said earlier, I hope you have a sweet new year, mm. which I thought was a nice sentiment. Yeah, you know, they use apple and honey mm. here. Apples, uh, they dip them in the honey, they give them the pomegranate. Pomegranate juice is a, a sign of the new year, and of course, all the stands around the old city. Uh, pomegranate juice everywhere. People uh, looking forward to celebrating, ringing out the old year with the last Shabbat that we watched at the Western Wall. And then, of course, uh, bringing in the new year on Sunday evening when Rosh Hashanah begins for the next two days. They'll be celebrating all over the country of Israel. Um, it's almost two extra days of Shabbat here in the land, but our folks will be here as we travel around. We're getting ready to go up to the Galilee. So many things that we did here in Jerusalem while we were here this time. Certainly has been fun to be here during Rosh Hashanah, a unique experience for our people. Well, Jimmy, I wanted to ask you a few questions why we go to the places that we go to. And we started our first full day of touring in Jerusalem, Jimmy, and the first place we went to was Shepherd's Fields. Yes. Uh, we start uh, our first two days in Jerusalem. Uh, we bring them here to take a look at the city of Jerusalem. We start off at Shepherd's Fields uh, talking about God's beginning of his plan for redemption for mankind with the birth of Jesus Christ. We go to the Shepherd's Fields, and that's the place that we feel where God brought forth his son, born of a virgin. As talked about in the book of Micah, as talked about in the book of Isaiah. And we also understand that it probably took place at Migdal Adar, the tower of the flock. First mentioned Jacob after he buried Rachel. He then makes his way, pitches a tent there at Migdal Adar. That's the same location the second time that it's mentioned is in the book of Micah, chapter 4. We think that that's the location of where Jesus was born at Migdal Adar, the tower of the flock where those priestly shepherds were watching over the sacrificial lambs that were used in the sacrifices on the temple. We do believe that's the place where he was born, and that is because that's what Scripture says. And we talk about that. You talked about that today. You talked about archaeology and tradition are two criteria we can use, but the most important criteria is the Bible. For sure. The Word of God is kind of the vanguard as to what we use when we take people to locations around Israel. We see what the Word of God says. You can use tradition. You can use archaeological remains. But when the Word of God says it and we study it and that's where an event took place using God's Word, it really helps us. And by the way, Rick, you, you know, we're, we're not going to find the place where Jesus was born because what would we do? We would just worship it. Yes, we would worship that spot. And God wants us to worship a risen Savior. And that's why we'll probably never know the exact location, but uh, we can use Scripture to help us determine uh, the area of where it took place. The next place we went to, Jimmy, was Yad Vashem. It was a very sombering visit to the Holocaust Memorial Museum. Yes, six million Jews went to their death, but for no other reason for being Jewish. And we take folks there, we remind them of God's promise to the Jewish people. 
For almost 1,900 years, the Jews were out of the land, and God prepared the Jewish people to return to the land of Israel. And the Holocaust event took place, prepared the people for the land of Israel as the Jews returned to the land. We realized that God made covenants with the Jewish people. That's why we watch and, and see how God is working in the lives of the nation of Israel in the last days. We also went to the Israel Museum, Jimmy. We saw the the uh, first temple period model, which is a great way to try to figure out what this area looked like at the time of Christ. And then the other thing that we did is we went and we saw the Dead Sea Scrolls, Jimmy. And I just wanted you, if you could talk about the importance of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and especially when they were found right around the time of the creation of the state of Israel. Those scrolls that were hidden 2,000 years ago in the desert, the oldest manuscripts that we have, there's a little over uh, probably about a thousand scrolls that are there that were found all together. Many portions of the scriptures, 19 copies of the book of Isaiah. It was so very important that uh, when those scrolls were found, 1948 was about the same time, Rick, that the nation of Israel came back to being a nation again. How interesting is that, that those scrolls that came to light and it's good to see that the same Hebrew that uh, they used in the olden days, young Jewish kids today, Hebrew readers can go and read the same words that were used as a part of the copies uh, of the manuscripts, of the text, of the Old Testament, and early writing. So I think it was very important that we take our folks there to see how God provided uh, a time uh, to understand that the scriptures that we have today are the very same scriptures that they used in the Old Testament in the times, and they were being copied at Qumran, those Dead Sea Scrolls that were found there. So I like going there, and folks really love seeing those Old Testament scrolls. Well, Jimmy, next week we'll continue on. We'll talk a little bit more about what we're going to do as we look at uh, Israel past, present, and prophetic. We're going to go up north. We're going to go to the Galilee and then back to Jerusalem later. So we look forward to being with you next week. Folks, as we watch Israel and what's taking place and what's happening around the world as we listen to our broadcast partners, we understand that those prophecies that are there, they help us to understand why the world is acting as it is. And as we keep our eyes on those events, it helps us to live a pure, productive life because we understand the rapture could take place at any moment. So as we watch the events, we encourage you to study God's Word, to have a worldview, to watch the events of what's taking place in the world so that you could understand the urgency of the hour, to tell others about God's plan of redemption for mankind the sending of his son that would ultimately die on the cross, be buried in a grave, and rise again. Thanks a lot, Rick. We'll see you again next week as we come back. Folks, let's keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee.